This is the Kineo Equipping Podcast. All right, so it's eight o'clock. Uh, I want to respect your time. Um, thank you guys so much for coming out. I know uh, for some, this is like pushing up against your bedtime, so I appreciate you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to pass this around. If you could just write your name on it. Uh, I'm trying to do a better job at actually tracking our metrics for some of these things. Um, also, if you don't have a book uh, or a binder, if you've already paid for it, go ahead and grab it. If you haven't, you can still go ahead and grab it. Um, and just make sure it's 12 bucks. Uh, that covers most of the book and then some of the binder materials. But um, just make sure you pay for that by the end of the class. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, so, and what you'll see in the binder, and you probably noticed this if you picked it up early, is that only the notes for this week are in there. Uh, hopefully there'll be a cumulative effect. What, what I found as I was writing the notes for the first class, I was like, this is a little more than, uh, than I anticipated. So, uh, essentially what we're trying to do for this class, we call it the story of God because we figured if we called it... Uh, Old Testament and New Testament survey, less people would sign up. So, <laughs> so that was kind of our Trojan horse to, to trick you, and Josie made a good graphic, so it was hopefully appealing. But really, what, what the purpose of this class is, is to give a survey overview of the Bible, and the way that we've broken it up is uh, particularly through the, the different genres of Scripture, and so uh, or different uh, subsets of Scripture. So uh, today we're going to be walking through the Pentateuch. And when I say through the Pentateuch, we're not going verse by verse through all through the first five books of the Bible. We don't have time for that. Um, so, but the purpose of this, honestly, the the way that we've structured our equipping classes is what we're trying to do is we're trying to help people grow uh, in Bible literacy. Um, one of the things that uh, that we found. The beauty of a connection group model with a church is that you get a lot of community. You're in the homes, in the living rooms of, of people. You're growing in community. You're, you're able to have discussion about the messages and stuff like that and, and, and talk about how to apply it to our lives. Um, but one of the things that can get lost is that uh, is real intentional teaching context and learning context. Because uh, the primary purpose of a connection group isn't ultimately learning. It's ultimately connection and building that community. And so what, what can happen over time is that if there aren't learning contexts for churches and for people in the church, uh, biblical illiteracy just continues to grow and grow and grow. Um, and what we're wanting to do is we're really wanting to take the, the great advantages and the, the great thing that connection groups are, and we're, we're wanting to kind of bolster the, uh, the connection groups with these learning environments so we're both growing in community and also in biblical literacy. And so the way that we've also structured our connection, our connection groups, our, uh, our equipping classes is uh, generally what you'll find is that on Sunday mornings, the classes are probably a little bit more accessible, uh, in this, uh, both from a time standpoint, because it's Sunday morning, you're probably already here, there's Candeo kids, it's, it, there, there's a convenience to it, um, and it's... It, it's probably a little bit lower shelf on the maybe uh, difficulty spectrum, okay? Uh, and that, that's on purpose, because we want to make the most accessible times, all that stuff, uh, as broad as possible, right? As we get into a Sunday evening context like this, uh, and if, if you did some of the reading for this week, you may have found that, um, that it kind of takes it, takes it a next step, where it's not the hardest thing you've probably ever read, but it's certainly probably not the easiest thing you've ever read. There takes, there's a greater level of commitment, um, a greater need for you to not push it off until uh, six o'clock on Sunday, right? So, so the, the Sunday evening environments uh, will be a little bit more, uh, may be a little bit deeper probably in nature, um, probably stretching for you in, in the things that you maybe normally read or even normally think about. And so uh, that's on purpose as well. Uh, we want to create particular learning environments um, that meet people kind of where they're at. And so, uh, so the fact that you're here and coming on a Sunday night, you've figured out what to do with your kiddos or pets or I don't know. Uh, you, uh, 
it, show, it shows a desire and it shows a hunger. And I, I really think that's awesome. So as we go through these next uh, seven weeks, um, you might find yourself, like as we get deeper into it, tempted to kind of slack or to, to fall off the wagon, as it were. And I just want to encourage you, like keep, keep the hunger that you have right now going through this because what we're going to talk about is going to be uh, really helpful and, and I, I would say essential as you read the Bible for yourself um, and being able to, to connect some of these kind of meta-narratives of Scripture and understand where things fit in the greater story. Uh, we call it story of God not just to be a Trojan horse, but it really is like there is, there is an overarching uh, framework to the Bible. There is a way to approach it um, that is really helpful in understanding it. So uh, like I said, you've got this book. Uh, part of the teaching will be... Um, mildly based on this, but, but what, I, what we didn't want to do is we didn't want to structure the class where we're essentially rereading this to you, right? Like, that's not helpful. And so uh, supplementary, uh, what we've done is we've also taken this book. Uh, it's called Understanding the Big Picture of the Bible, um, and it's written by a few guys uh, that are really smart, and uh, Thomas Schreiner in particular is kind of one of my favorites. And so uh, this is the book that we're using to kind of um, supplement this book. So these two kind of go together. And what the teaching that you're going to get tonight is kind of based off of is mostly this book and a little bit of this book. And so that's kind of how this is structured. If you, like, if you're like, man, I really want to nerd out on this stuff, you can read both books. That's great. Um, and you'll find that we're pulling a lot from this as well. So uh, I'm teaching tonight. And then um, Mark Jackson is going to be a primary teacher. He's right there. He's one of our elders. Uh, and I told Mark when he walked in, I'm like, I'm actually really glad you're here because uh, for some of these notes tonight, I was, I was uh, looking some stuff up and I was like, yeah, I'm an idiot. Like, I need someone smarter than me to probably uh, phone a friend on this. So, <laughs> so I'm, I might be phoning Mark in on, on some of this stuff. But uh, Mark Jackson will be teaching several. Uh, Shane Klein, another one of our, uh, of our elders, will be teaching. Jordan Prohoda is going to hop in uh, kind of towards the end. Um, and then I'll co-teach with him at some point as well. And so that's kind of the who will be leading the class, a little bit of the reason behind the class. And so um, let's just jump in here. You got your notes. I, put, I did it as a fill-in-the-blank format. And I actually made slides for it, Mark, this afternoon, per your suggestion this morning. So, yeah. <laughs> so... Hopefully, it'll be a little bit easier to follow along. Um, now, now, I hope this doesn't insult your intelligence, all right, this first part. Uh, but I think it's helpful. And it's, it's where D.A. Carson essentially starts in, in his book. So the Bible is made up of 66 books that form two sections. All right, a lot of you probably know this. The Old Testament and the New Testament, all right? Most people avoid the Old Testament like a plague. Like, because there's so, we're, we're reading through the Bible with our kids, and uh, it's, it's the first time where it's like an act, actual Bible. Like, it, it's, it's a co more colorful version of this, you know? It's, it's like a tie dye thing, so it's aesthetically appealing, but it's a CSB. It's what we read on Sunday. Because uh, what I found was I was sitting next to Naomi on a Sunday morning, and we were in Hebrews, and her kid's Bible doesn't have Hebrews, you know. And so I was like, man, I really want my six-year-old to be able to actually turn to the passage that we're in and read along. She can understand it, stuff like that. Um, but the reason why most people, I'm, I'm being reminded why most people avoid the Old Testament is because, one, it's pretty graphic, honestly. Like, it's not G-rated. Uh, and so reading through it with your six-year-old is kind of interesting. And then there's a bunch of names you can't pronounce. Like, there's a lot of things that uh, you, uh, the average person would want to avoid. It's not easy to read the Old Testament and go, oh, that's what I can apply today. Like, for those of us who want this kind of microwave drive-through, kind of like, uh, I think uh, Jen Wilkin calls it the Xanax approach. Like, we just, we just need to pop our pill and get on with our day kind of thing, and it'll help us feel better. Um, most people avoid the Old Testament. We're going to be spending essentially the first half of this class understanding the structure of the Old Testament, because really, you, you can't, I won't say you can't, it's, you understand the New Testament in black and white, when you understand the Old Testament with the New Testament, 
it, become, it starts to become color, okay? And so it's really difficult to understand what's going on in the New Testament without the framework of the Old Testament. So 66 books, New Testament, Old Testament. Uh, the Bible is an unfolding story of various genres and basic components that communicate God's unified plan for all of history. It's an unfolding story of various genres and basic components that communicate God's unified plan for all of history. Now, I, I meant to, and I didn't, uh, I meant to print off. So one of the things that, uh, that we cover in the How to Study Your Bible class uh, is a description of the genres of Scripture. Um, I, I would encourage you, uh, and I'll try to remember it for next week. Um, I, I really hate that. I'll probably forget, but I'll try to remember it. Genre in the Bible is incredibly important. Like understanding the, the type of writing that you're reading. For, for a lot of us, uh, we're, we're really in, in a post-enlightenment era where we kind of expect a, a certain kind of like scientific stringentness to the Bible. Like we, we expect like a precise level of literalism and, uh, and measurable accuracy, and which, which leaves no room for any sort of uh, any kind of poetry, like if, if, if you read poetry literally, you're gonna have a hard time. Like you just are. Like trees don't have hands, so how do they clap? And it's like, well, there it is. The Bible's just stupid. And it's like, well, dude, it's <laughs> yeah, but it's 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 imagery. There's imagery. There's metaphor. There's nuance. There, there's a variety of genres within Scripture. And and some of the hangup that some people have when they read the Bible is they they try to read the Bible. Uh, like it's a like it's a science textbook, or like it's they're like it's a history book where it's just a statement of just objective facts. And and what we see in scripture is that there there's an intermingling of genre even within even within a a book itself. And so like take take the book of Job where you start off and it's it's a bit more narrative and then kind of like after what is it like chapter three or four something like that it kind of turns more into poetry where even within books there'll be a variety of genres. Uh, that take place. And so to understand genre and to learn how to recognize that as you're reading the Bible will help you in interpreting scripture. And so um, it's an unfolding story uh, of various genres that communicate God's unified plan for all of history. Now, uh, one thing you might hear people say is that, um, is that the Bible has one story. It's just one story, uh, which in one sense is true, but I think it's a bit more accurate to say like the Bible is several stories that all serve a unified plan of God. And so uh, if you have a Bible or uh, a phone, go ahead and turn to, here we got Ephesians 1. And this is a great like summary of what this unified plan is. Like what, what is the ultimate plan, the overarching plan uh, that the whole Bible and its various stories and subsets is, is leading to. Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time. That's key, verse 10, as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both in heaven and things on earth in him. Verse 11, in him we have also received an inheritance because we are predestined according to the plan, there it is again, of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. We kind of talked about that this morning. Like, like the ultimate goal of God is to display his glory to the ends of the earth. And part of what we do as his creation and bring him glory is, is to praise him. And so this unified plan, there is a redemptive theme that weaves its way throughout scripture, ultimately so that God's glory would be displayed to the nations. But it, it, it comes about in, in, in kind of this like weaving, winding road, right? But there is a unified plan. All right, so we talked about um, various genres and basic components. So here's some kind of frameworks of understanding to understand. Now remember, this, this is kind of, this is, what I'm talking about right now is kind of an overarching uh, 
uh, way to understand the Bible, and then we're going to get into uh, particularly the Pentateuch here in just a little bit. So this is kind of like overall Bible stuff. So basic components to understand is monotheism. If you, if you approach the Bible thinking that, uh, that there isn't one God, uh, you're going to have a hard time reading through it. But there is only one God. Here we go. Haha. There's only one God who made heaven and earth, and this God is holy and morally spotless. He rules over heaven and earth and will vindicate his own goodness and justice in his own time. So we need to have a framework of, of a monotheistic God, of one God, as we read through Scripture. And that Deuteronomy 6 uh, is, uh, is basically a... a it, it, now it's more of a mantra um, that, uh, the, the, that the Jews had, um, that behold, O Israel, your God is one kind of thing. So, so monotheism, another framework as we, as we approach the Bible, another component is the creation and the fall. We see this in Genesis 1 through Genesis 3. God created everything to reflect his glory. We talked about that this morning. He created the first human beings, Adam and Eve, to spread the blessings of Eden to the ends of the earth. Adam and Eve abdicated. That's one of my new favorite words, abdicated. Their role. Uh, and when it says and God's ambassadors, it should be as God's ambassadors. There we go. Their role as God's ambassadors and brought the curse of sin upon humanity through their disobedience. So there's one God. This God created everything. He created the first people, and those first people fell from their created role, okay? This is just basic framework here. So now, and this is the, we'll get into it later, election and covenant, particularly covenant. Mark's a lot smarter with covenant stuff than I am. Election and covenant, these are just overarching things. The one true God chose a people for himself and bound himself to them by his covenants, or by his covenant. He chose a people for himself, bound himself to them by his covenant. God's covenants generally involve one person who represents the whole people. And so this is where you see like God, like even this morning as we went to that Exodus passage where God is interacting with Moses because Moses is the representative uh, of the people in the same way you see it with Abraham. Uh, and later on you see it, um, Isaac with David, uh, there's representatives of the covenant for the whole community. Um, so the rest of the people experience the covenant by nature of their inclusion in the community represented, right? So, and this is, this is part of why it really matters. Um, uh, it really matters as you read through the Old Testament, uh, particularly with like kings, where it's like, like they, they are covenant representatives of the people. So it really matters like whether your king follows the ways of God. Or not, because it has a direct like impact on your life. I think for us as Americans, it's kind of like, we, in a sense, we're we've, we're a bit disassociated from our president, right? It's like, well, I, I can kind of like forge my own path, do my like what he does or what she does. Uh, yeah, it affects me, but not like so directly. What we see in scripture is like there's a pretty direct uh, affect that that your king has on your life if if they choose to not follow the ways of the Lord. Like, that's very direct because they're representatives of the covenant community. So, election and covenant, covenant membership. So each member of God's people is responsible to lay hold of his grace from the heart by believing his promises, by growing in obedience to his commands, and to persevere in this growth for the length of their lives. So by believing his promises. So what we see here, uh, it, and it's not so much, it's, it's not as different as we think. Like it, we, there was always the expectation that, that obedience within the covenant relationship would have a, a heart nature to it. Like there, that there would be, it wouldn't just be duty and obligation, that there would also be a heart behind it that desires to do the things that were stipulated within the covenant rules. And so 
I think sometimes we can think like, well, they, they were just duty and obligation. Now we have to follow God from our heart. And it's like, no, it was actually expected across God's covenant people that there would be a heart motivation behind their obedience. But there was still the expectation of obedience and also perseverance in that obedience. We just finished the book of Hebrews where we talk about perseverance being so key uh, as a mark of God's covenant people. Uh, and that's been true across the board here as we go through the Old Testament and what's expected of believers even now in the New Testament. And this is kind of where you can get into, uh, I think a lot of times for us, uh, we, we gauge the, uh, how would I say it? Um, not quality, uh, but we, we gauge the validity of faith on the beginning of that faith, not on the perseverance of that faith. And that that over time turns into a problem like because it's because it turns into this like as so long as you say a prayer then you're sure that you're saved and it's like there is a perseverance factor of this that 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 validates the veracity of that claim to faith right and that's been true since the old testament that's not just a today thing so covenant membership is an overarching thing um another thing in covenant membership historical judgments upon the whole people often come because too many of the members are unfaithful. They're unfaithful to those covenant stipulations. And these judgments are not meant to exterminate God's people, but are meant to purify them. A, a key thing that you'll see across the, across the Old Testament, particularly as you get into the prophets, um, uh, eventually Israel gets split up into the north and the south where you got Israel and you got uh, Judah, right? And so... Um, the, the purpose of these judgments coming on to God's people um, is so that what, what you'll see as you read through it is there's always a faithful remnant. Like God's people aren't, aren't ultimately totally exterminated from the face of the earth because there, there comes out of these judgments in, in a purifying effect, like, like gold refined by fire, there's a faithful remnant that comes out of God's judgment. Um, and so, yeah, the, the judgments are come across Come, come upon the whole people because, because there's a, a oh, what would it be called? Like a critical mass um, that gets reached within the, with, within the covenant community of unfaithfulness that there needs to be a purification of those people so that the faithful remnant would emerge remaining faithful. Again, back to the persevering. So, like I said, we're, it's a little deeper here. So, final thing eschatology. So this is the future hope of God restoring all of creation once again to himself in perfect harmony in which all kinds of people come to know him and join his people forever. This is part of what you see in God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 uh, where uh, God has chosen Abraham. Abraham is the covenant representative to the people who would eventually become Israel, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob gets turned to Israel. Uh, but God promises that, that, uh, that the nations would be blessed through Abraham. And what's so interesting in that is that it's not just the nation of Israel, but it's nations, plural, that there was always a, um, an inclusive nature to the redemption that was going to come through God's covenant people. And so as we get into the New Testament, as you look at Jews and Gentiles, right, like we go all the way back to Genesis 12 to be like, that was God's plan that Gentiles would be included in this redemptive act that God was going to bring about through Jesus Christ. And we see that all the way back in the, in the 12th chapter of Genesis, that, that God's blessing and redemption would be to all the nations, um, not just Israel. And so, yeah, eschatology, that's where that's at. All right, so creative God. All right, so here, I'm just going to put my cards on the table here. Uh, we're not going to be covering the different beliefs and theories about the creation of the world, like, like literal seven-day creation, day-age theory, gap theory, deistic, theistic evolution. Like, you could, you can, and that's great to nerd out on that stuff. Like, that's awesome. Um, and that's not to, the, re the reason we're not going to cover these things isn't because it's not important. Um, it's just not the scope of this class. All right, so I just got to kind of get that out there. Um, one thing as I was reading through, uh, I think it was in the, I think this was in the Carson book, actually. 
Um, and I really appreciated the way that he approached this because you could get hung up on, on those like, is this a literal seven days? Is, this, is there a gap between day one and day, like all that stuff. I, I love this. A good question when approaching the endless debate uh, that clouds discussions, forgive my, this happened this afternoon, all right, so. The slides did, not the notes. Uh, that clouds discussions of creation and origin is what is the least that Genesis 1 and the following chapters must be saying for the rest of the Bible to make any sense. I loved that approach. Like, like this could be saying a variety of things. And a lot of people have a bunch of different thoughts on it. And a lot of them are pretty intelligent and fairly convincing. And like, like which one is it, you know? Uh, I think this was really helpful. And it's like, can we just say, at, here's what it at least says, that no matter where you land on these different theories and discussions, like we could probably all agree on this. I thought that was a really wise way to approach uh, the creation part of what we're talking about here. So the first one, what the creation account tells us about God is that God is. So the Bible begins assuming the presence of God, right? And just, just a quick little thing, like the Bible wasn't written to answer every possible question you could think of. Like, like there are some things, like if you walk away from reading from reading the Bible and from studying a particular issue that you run into and you're like, it just doesn't seem like the Bible answers this question. And you're like, I'm just telling you like, maybe it doesn't. It's possible that it, it doesn't. It's possible that what was written wasn't written and intended to answer your specific question, right? And so when we, when we come into Genesis 1, uh, the Bible doesn't set out to prove the existence of God. It simply assumes it, that God is. What the creation account tells us about God is that God made everything that is not God, okay? It's another way of saying he created everything that exists. In order for it to exist, uh, it needed God to exist. If it existed apart from God, uh, it would not not be God, right? So he created everything that is not God. Uh, God is one. Uh, that goes back to our Deuteronomy, uh, our Deuteronomy chapter six. Goes back to that monotheism. That God is one, and th th this feels so base level, but it, it is—it's so helpful that God speaks. Like that, God is a speaking God. He's not an aloof God. He's not a far-off God. He's not an—he's not an uninterested God, uh, but he's a speaking God. He's an interested God. He's an involved God. Um, that God speaks. Everything God makes is good. We see that, and I don't have time to get into this. I, one of the things I love, oh, we, we covered it a little bit in, uh, in Hebrews, what would that be? Seven or nine? Um, where every day of creation God calls good except for the seventh day. He calls it holy because it's so associated with his rest that there's a, there, there's a distinction between this, the first six days of creation and the seventh day. It, it's just so fast. Like, if you want to nerd out on that, just go study that. But, but everything God made is good. At the end of each day of creation, with the exception of the seventh, uh, he says that it's good. Like, when God speaks and creates, that you can be sure that that thing is good. And then at the end of creation, God rested. So that, that's, like, that's, the, that's the least that we can know. That's the baseline. Every, every uh, theory and thought on the different aspects of different creation things um, can at least agree on that for the most part. right? So at the end of creation, God rested. And that rest is the basis for the, the rest that we look forward to uh, because of Christ, we can look forward to rest with God because God not only rested, but is also resting. Like God is, God is in a state of rest and we will one day enter that rest as we persevere in our faith 
we will one day enter that rest. That's, that's the hope that we can have in our perseverance. Like that is what can spur us on into perseverance where we actually extend ourselves uh, for the sake of the kingdom and we can look forward to entering God's rest because he's rested on the seventh day and is still resting. So we can enter that rest and have that hope. We see that in, uh, in Hebrews. So any questions so far? I know I'm flying through this. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I have a question. Yeah. You know, like, and I think I talked about it uh, this up, it's just like writing in the time period, like, how do you account for, like, the author of that time frame writing Okay. Can you give me an example? Well, I guess, like, I guess some of the social mores and stuff like that that may take place in those time frames that the author may have written in versus the way it is. We may see the social mores today, or, I mean, how much of it a role is, like, I guess the one thing that I struggle with is, like, particularly in the Old Testament, when you read it and you're like, oh my goodness gracious, you know, they're like, thousands of people, you know, and there, mm. there's a lot of, like, things, like, wow, and it's, like, is the author writing, because that's the way it was in that time frame, or is just the way God wanted it to be, versus, Sure, uh, to a degree, yeah. does anyone else understand better <laughs> what, what, what you're well, asking? Well, I mean, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get later in some of the, sure. but, I mean, that's the struggle I've had when I've read the Old Testament. It's like, mm-hmm. it seems to be very, um, it's hard for me to comprehend it being, I guess, more literal. Sure. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Yep. So I th- I'm, I'm understanding your question better now. Um, there is a difference between reading the Bible literally and reading it literally. And so this is where this kind of comes in. So, uh, I'll, I'll add an example here, um, and this is a, probably a dumb one, but I think it'll make the point. Uh, so David commits adultery with Bathsheba. Now, we, now, that's not prescriptive, right? Like, like, oh, because the Bible recounts that David committed adultery with Bathsheba, then that means that, but David is said to be a man after God's own heart. So that, that means that it's okay to commit adultery. It's like, no. It was, it was recording what was happening here. You know, like, God wasn't commanding David to go commit adultery with Bathsheba, right? Now, the, the part where it gets a little interesting is when you get into, like, um, like, the conquest of Canaan, right? Where it's like, seems like God is telling them to go in and to do these things to these nations. And for us, that, that offends within us a sense of, uh, of morality, right? Um, and Mark could maybe speak a little bit more to this, but like, uh, one, when that is prescriptive from God, uh, one, we can't assume that those nations are innocent and not deserving of God's judgment. Uh, so a lot of times what we see, uh, and we, we kind of hit it up earlier, is that uh, a lot of times the judgment and the purification that the people of Israel experienced was at the hands of pagans. And so they would come in and take them into exile, commit all these atrocious acts against God's people. Now, they weren't without, uh, uh, they weren't absolved from responsibility in that, but they were God's purifying agents for his people. In the same way, you could flip that around and go, yeah, these people were actually deserving of God's judgment as well. And Israel, not only in, in making their way to the promised land that God had given them, God was also using his people as that purifying agent to go into these guilty peoples, right? Now, for us, that can kind of make us feel a little uncomfortable. Um, But we also see that it's not prescriptive, that it's like, well, anyone you want to kill, it's not this kind of like Darwinian, you know, like survival of the fittest, just go kill everybody, like that you can. Like there there were specific things that God instructed his people to do, um, and it wasn't for, uh, for lack of intention, that God had both for his people and for the people that it was happening to, if that makes sense. Would you add any, anything to that, Mark? Well, Glenn, I'm really glad you're asking this question because I think I would hope that all of us have questions about the Bible that we struggle with and 
works doing God's good. Mm. And so I'll plug the library. We're going to be having a library pretty soon. And one of the books that I put in there is it's called Counterpoints um, for Views on the Canaanite Genocide. And so, like, one of them I would mm. say is a view that we wouldn't ascribe to as a church, and that is that they were pre Christian, they're doing something immoral um, that the people of the Old Testament are sinful. Like, essentially, that's the viewpoint they take. But then there's other views of, like, that's a unique time in history that God did something very differently. Um, then there's other views of like what Jake's talking about with eschatology. Um, there's reasons by they're not innocent people. There's none of us are innocent. But then really, what is God commanding? So the book goes through three, I think, good viewpoints that one could have. On, mm. This is how we can understand as Christians, and we don't all agree on it. Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad you plugged that that uh, library too, and that. That library was curated by our elders with Mark taking a, a big lead on that. Um, and that'll be available fairly soon. The reason it's not is because of me. Uh, I have to get a few things done. Mark's ready to go with it. So I'm the hang up here, all right? So don't blame Mark. Um, but yeah, that'd be a great resource. Those, those counterpoint books are awesome. They've got, they've got quite a few of them that are really helpful. Um, all right, so let's see here. All right, so what the creation account tells us, tells us about God, this is the least that it tells us about God. What the creation account tells us about humans, all right? So that God created hum, the first humans, Adam and Eve. That humans are created in the image of God. That humans are created male and female. That's important, particularly in, in our day and age, to understand that. That humans were created innocent, so we were created without sin. Everything God creates is good. But then also that humans have fallen from that innocence and are in need of a savior. And this is a big deal because uh, we aren't just wounded and need healed. Like, we're dead and need to be made alive. Like, that, that, that's a big thing, right? We're, and we, we hit this a lot here at Candeo because it, it is a huge thing to understand the nature of humanity. Like, if we don't understand the nature of our... the, the the fallenness of our nature, we're not going to understand the greatness of God's grace in Christ. Like this wasn't just putting a Band-Aid on a wound. This was like doing a miraculous thing and raising the dead to life, right? Like that is what Christ accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so that, it, it seems elementary, but it, it is really key for us to understand the nature of humanity uh, in order for us to actually understand the greatness of our salvation in Christ. So, all right, so that's creation. And just so you know, like, like as we started to talk about what, what, is the, what does the, uh, the creation account tell us the least about God, and what does it at least tell us about humans, like now we're entering into our understanding of the Pentateuch. So the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And this, this serves as the basis for understanding really the rest of Scripture. Um, one of the things that, uh, that is really helpful, like particularly for new believers, I think sometimes, and this isn't bad, it's good to, to send them to a book like John or a book like Mark or like Matthew, or like the New Testament, like read, a, read about Jesus, right? Like that's, that's good. Um, but pretty soon uh, after someone becomes a believer, I, I at least want them to get a sense of Genesis and Exodus. Like, and, and that helps kind of navigate that like Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you know. I, I don't expect new believers to be able to navigate those last three books uh, with as much um, uh, endurance as maybe you would want. You know, that's usually where people die in their Bible reading plan. Um, but particularly in that Genesis and Exodus, like you, you get who is God, the nature of humanity, and you, you start getting into 
this right here, covenant people, like God's covenant relationship with his people. And so there's three common views of God's relationship with humanity. All right, so the first one is the super soft grandfather or Santa Claus. Super soft grandfather or Santa Claus. And and here's why I think uh, sometimes God gets this, people view God this way. Let me find it here. Um, Because this isn't new, right? Romans chapter 2, verse verse 4, but really verse 3, 3 and 4. Do you really think any of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same that you will escape God's judgment? Verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. I think one of the reasons why people see God as this like super benevolent, like kind of pushover grandfather Santa Claus type figure, uh, where he's just kind of like, oh, it's okay, you know, and just like go go get a go get a lollipop kind of thing, is because it's like because people so emphasize the kindness of God, the love of God, the um, the patience of God, which is so true. The purpose of God's kindness is to lead to repentance. Like, that's the purpose of his patience. It's not because he doesn't care, but it's because God is so long-suffering because he desires that people uh, will, have, will have every opportunity, as much time as possible, to be able to repent, not to continue in their sin. And so... So often, it's like, well, God, it doesn't really matter. God will forgive me, all this kind of stuff. It's like, man, don't don't be presumptuous about the patience of God. Like, his patience is meant to lead you to repentance so that you won't fall under the the terrible judgment of God. Like, there is a, God is, is fearful. His wrath is terrible like and his patience is a gracious gift that is meant to invoke within us repentance not um not a complacency in our sin but uh most a lot of people view god as a super soft grandfather and he's not all right this one is in your notes um so deism the belief that god the belief in a God who made the world but who never interrupts its operations with, nat- with supernatural events. God does not interfere with his creation. Rather, he designed it to run independent of him by immutable natural laws. And so this is kind of the, the view of God that, uh, that he created the globe, spun it, and then walked away. You know, it's like, well, the reason there's no, <laughs> the reason like, like the the solar system is a vacuum is just so that the globe can keep spinning and God never has to re-spin it kind of thing. You know, it's like God created it, sure, but he's totally un, uh, uninvolved, right? Like that that's a deistic view. So deism, and then we get mutual back-scratching. It is kind of funny to me that you have a, there's like super soft, Backscratch, and then like deism, like a real theological word in the middle. Back, mutual backscratching is not a theological word. Is there a theological word for that, Mark? Okay. <laughs> so sacrifices or obedience elicit God's approval and blessing, while disobedience results in God's disapproval and punishment. Um, this is the, uh, y- you may live within a, within a mutual backscratching framework um, and maybe not even know it, where it's like, God's angry with me today that I didn't read my Bible. Like, there's maybe like a low form of that, right? Where it's like, well, my day is going to go poorly. Like, God's going to make my day go poorly because I didn't do this. But if I did read my Bible, then... Then I've, then I've satisfied him. I've given him a sacrifice that has appeased him. 
and it'll make things go better for me. Uh, that's kind of like that low-level version of that. Um, that that sacrifices and obedience elicit God's approval. Like, like God has to react this way because I've done this, um, which essentially puts us in charge. Like, puts us in the position of controlling God, right? Where it's like, well, you have to respond this way because I did this, right? It's like this isn't a barter system here. So, so we're still here on covenant people. Here's three misunderstandings of God. Um, and like I said, uh, yeah. So how is that different than like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Jacob like often sacrifices to God. Yeah. Like how is that relationship different than like the mutual grass grasses? Because when they made a sacrifice to God, it like appeased him. For that reason, but like sure. it made him like, it was, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. It makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't. It's a good question, but God is still in, in those scenarios, still very much the one in charge. Like, like he responds how he wants to. So it's, it's not like a, a sense of obligation. And God has set the parameters of the relationship still as well. And so when God is, is commanding people to do something, sure, there, there will be a sense where it's like, if you disobey God, there will be uh, consequences um, but it's not because uh, you're in the driver's seat still. I think that's where the mutual backscratching thing is different. It is this kind of like um, like celestial barter system that we can set up in our minds. Like, like if I do this, then God, you have to do this, uh, which doesn't come from a heart of, um, uh, of joyful obedience. It comes from a heart of, of backhanded manipulation. Right, and so I would say that that's one of the differences probably there. Uh, part of it's a heart posture, and the other part of it is the nature of the relationship as those things are being done in obedience. Um, God is still very much so in the driver's seat of those scenarios. Um, but there is certainly like a dynamic in that relationship where like God does expect us to, to act in particular ways, right? And so that, that isn't to absolve us where it's like, well, it doesn't matter if I disobey God because I'm not trying to, not trying to earn anything anyway. It's like within a covenant relationship, you need all of those things. It's like, like the, the joy-filled, the, the heart from the heart, obedience that perseveres. Like it's kind of like that trifecta. And if you take one of those legs off, like the stool's gonna fall over kind of thing. So there's a, there's a synergy there with those, I would say. I think the author described Yeah. And then, like traditionally, in that time frame, like, if you made a contract, both of you walk through it. Mm-hmm. But God didn't walk through you with, with, with the person making the sacrifice. You walk through it. And, you know, God is that higher, well, He is the highest being. But, I mean, He, you know, I, I, I think He described that very well. It could maybe it help me make sense of that with that question. Like, am I making a sacrifice for God? Versus, like, you know, or making a contract with God. Whereas, you know, no, he, he, he holds this higher speed. Mm. And then the person walks through those, those, those how, how together. And, I mean, something I also think, like, I don't know how this may tie biblically, but, you know, I'm thinking, like, if you're sacrificing, like, your most precious, I mean, I'm thinking, like, a, you know, it has to be a, a year's wages, or I mean, it's got to be a, a huge cost to a, a person. And I'm thinking, like, if I have to sacrifice this, I mean, this is like, I mean, this is, and this barely atones for the sin that I commit in this time frame, whatever it may be. Like, I'm not, as an author, I'm mention that, but uh, to me, it, 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 it feels that that would make me as a person, like, oh my goodness gracious, my sin is so great. Mm-hmm. And um, I have, I mean, the sacrifice just didn't even come close to like atoning for my sin. Mm. But and what what we're gonna see, and that'll actually be, uh, it's almost the next slide. We're almost getting to something that you hit on earlier. Um, 
So not, not celestial but gracious gifts. Here we go. Kinds of covenants, and this is where we're getting into that. So you have conditional, which is bilateral. It's an agreement between two parties that requires certain terms to be met. And then you've got unconditional or unilateral, which is an agreement between two or more parties that involves no stipulations of any kind for the fulfillment of the agreement. And so this is where, um, man, uh, we, we got to sift through a few things in order to get uh, back to something you were just saying there. All right, so covenants in the Pentateuch. We're almost done here. Covenants in the Pentateuch. There's more in the Old Testament, but these are kind of the big ones in the Pentateuch. You have Edemic, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic. Kind of rhymes. It's not on purpose. So, <laughs> so with Edemic, what we have is, is the covenant with Adam, or the covenant in creation. Right? And we kind of looked at that a little bit this morning with Genesis 1, uh, 28 through 30. Um, I'll actually pull that up here. Read through that. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of light in it, I've having the breath of life in it, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So, like, God gives uh, dominion of creation over to Adam, right? And, and we see later on then, in, or in just a few verses later, like, like, there's also, like, the institution of marriage and stuff like that, like these different kind of covenants within the, within Adamic. And then you get to Noahic, uh, fast forward to Genesis 9, right? We got Noah, we got the flood, uh, everything happens there, they come out of the ark, uh, and then you got Genesis 9, where God makes a covenant with Noah, and this is so interesting, because it says, Genesis 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That sounds familiar. Like, it's a reinstitution of what God told Adam. And then you get further down, uh, let's see, uh, the fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. And he, he essentially goes down and kind of says, like, uh, essentially, God will preserve the stability of nature so that his people will flourish. That's essentially what God tells Noah. Like, and that's the promise that he makes, that, that, he, won't, that he won't destroy the earth through a flood again, that he'll, that'll hang his bow in the sky. We've got our rainbow here. And, like, God is going to preserve the stability of nature so that his people will flourish. Like, that's, that's the promise that God makes to Noah. And we fast forward just uh, three chapters later to uh, the Abrahamic covenant. This is kind of what I referenced this morning uh, with Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And I know, I know we've been in Genesis a lot, and I keep saying we're in the Pentateuch. Like, this really serves as the basis for the rest of the first five books of the Bible. And so Genesis 12... Uh, I'll make you a great nation, I'll bless you, I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There it is, all nations, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This covenant is then set again in Genesis 15, and this is, this is kind of where we get to that, that covenant, uh, that, that ratification ceremony here. But what's so interesting, uh, because, yeah, as... Like, when, when covenants were made, it was generally like you cut the animals in half, you put them on both sides, you walk through it, you know, together, essentially signifying, like, like if, I, if I break this covenant, let what happened to these animals be done to me, right? Like, this is, that's essentially what you're signifying. What you have with Abraham in Genesis 15 is that um, God reiterates this, and then he goes, let's see here. Da, 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 da. So verse, let's see, 
17, I think it is. When the sun had set and it was dark. Uh, wait. Here we go. Oh, here we go. Verse 12. As the sun was setting, so God has Abraham set up this scene, right? Cut up these animals, put them out. We're going to ratify a covenant. Verse 12. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain. So Abram's sleeping. Know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. So book of Exodus. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions, the plundering of the Egyptians, but you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Then verse 17, when the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals by itself. Like, like the Lord passed between the animals by himself. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River. And he, he lays the boundaries of the land. And so what you have here is God going through that ratification ceremony where normally you'd have two people walk through there uh, signifying that. And like what God does, is he's like, all right, Abram, get the animals, cut them in half, like set it up. He would have known as he's doing this, like this looks, I know this scene here. And then God's like, go to sleep. To where, to where you can imagine Abram waking up and now everything's just burnt, you know? It's like there's nothing to walk between now. Because uh, God, like, like, God, what the heck? Like, he can't even, Abram can't even try, like, ah, how, how do I, how do I do this? It's like, no, this is as sure as God's name himself. Like, this will happen. I walked through this by myself and now I've burned up everything so that you can't even attempt to try to add your own attempts at making sure that this is fulfilled. Like, this is on my name. And then you see throughout the rest of the Old Testament that God is faithful to his promise and to his people. And so you have the Abrahamic covenant there. And then the Mosaic, uh, this was that Exodus 19. Um, this is also Deuteronomy 7. So Exodus 19, uh, again, this, this felt a lot like a, this morning felt a lot like a precursor to this class, but Exodus 19, where uh, they're, at the, they're at the base of Mount Sinai. Uh, God declares uh, his covenant to his people there, that they'll be his chosen possession. Um, and there's, there's kind of four main elements uh, to, the, to the Mosaic covenant that springboards us into the rest of the Pentateuch, all right? Those main elements are the Exodus. So God brings his people out of the land of Egypt, there's the sealing of the old covenant and the giving of the law. So, so what we see then in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, for the most part, there's some other things in there, but it are very detailed descriptions of now how the covenant people of God are to interact with each other and to interact with God. And so that's why the book of Leviticus is so agonizingly difficult to get through is because there's so many details. But the reason for that is that it's laying out now how the people of God are to interact with each other and to interact with God himself. And what you see there in Deuteronomy 7, uh, verses 7 through 11, is uh, that, that God shows Israel by no merit of their own, right? And so that's where, that's where you get into... Um, the basis for the salvation of God's people isn't their uh, fulfillment of the giving of the law and the old covenant rituals. Because here's what happened. God had already saved his people from the land of Egypt before he gave them the ways in which they were to live. So it wasn't like they're in Egypt and he gives them the law and all of these rituals and says, all right, let's see how you do with this before I decide to save you. Because what would happen then is like their, their salvation would have been contingent on their ability to fulfill this law. When it's like, no, that's not how the, salvation, how the salvation of God works. Like God saved them and then gave them the law. Like now because you are my, my rescued people, you are my covenant people, now 
because I have done this, you didn't save yourself, you didn't contribute anything to this, you, you walked out. Now, live in this way. And that is what we see as a basis for the way in which believers live today, is like we, we didn't choose God, God first chose us, we didn't love God first, God first loved us. And because we are now God's chosen people, there is an expectation that we live in a particular way, but it's not so that we can obtain the salvation of God for ourselves. Like that has already happened. But now it's because as the covenant people of God, that will necessarily mean that we live in a particular kind of way. And so what we see here in the first five books of the Old Testament really is a a kind of framework. Like you can see how how connected the way that God is interacting with his people here in the, in the first five books of the Bible, how connected that is with us understanding our own salvation. The, the Exodus event, as you read through the Old Testament, is, the, is like the watershed moment that God himself points back to. Like as he's reminding people of his faithfulness, he's constantly reminding them of their salvation from Egypt because that is so key and them understanding their covenant relationship with God, like I chose you and saved you out of Egypt. Now live in these ways. And that for us as believers here now in the New Testament, it's like God chooses us, God saves us. We don't contribute to our salvation, but there are ways in which we are to live because of our salvation. Like it is so inextricably linked to what we see here in the first five books of the Bible. And so as you read through the Pentateuch, um, hopefully some of these things, uh, this is kind of a summary here. Man, if I missed this last one, some of you note takers would have killed me. <laughs> so this is a summary. In the first five books of the Bible, we see the creation of the world and everything in it, the fall of mankind into sin and death, the promises of God, toward his chosen people and the detailed religious and relational expectations of this covenant community as they travel to the land that God promised them. That's what we see here in the first five books of the Old Testament. And so this is going to serve now as the framework for pretty much everything then that comes out of the Pentateuch as we get into the historical literature as we get into books like First and Second Samuel and Kings and Joshua and Judges and all these, like now it is the people of Israel uh, expected to live within this, within this covenant framework and, and how they do and how they don't do and, and, and how God responds to that, uh, to his people. So, yeah, any, any questions as we kind of wrap it up here? I know it was a lot, like, just so you know, this is part of why we Trojan horse the survey uh, language, because really a lot of this is like what normally could be a 16-week seminary class crammed into seven. Um, and yeah, it's like getting hit with a fire hose. So. <laughs> All right, so... Moving forward, you've got at the front of your book, you have your reading schedule. Um, so before next week, make sure that you read um, those chapters. And then for if there are weeks that you're not able to make it, um, we're going to put the audio. We have, we have, as best we can, we're putting the audio of all of our equipping classes on uh, the Candeo Equipping Podcast. So if you just go to iTunes or Spotify, Look up Candeo Equipping Podcast. It'll be there. So if you miss a week here or if you're like, if at any point in the future, you're like, man, I really wanted to take that class, uh, but it just didn't work, um, we really want to try to make this as accessible as possible. So the mobility of, of these class sessions within the podcast um, hopefully is a blessing uh, to you guys and to whoever isn't able to make it at the particular times that we have these classes. So feel free. Um, to check those out. Check out uh, Mark and Amanda's class from this morning on how to study your Bible. That'll be up here in the next couple days. Um, again, if you, if you didn't grab your book or if you, however that worked with you with the books and binders, just make sure that, um, that your name is on that list back there. I also have the attendance sheet here for this week. Uh, but that, that'll just ensure that if I need to communicate with you at any point uh, as a whole class or even individually that um, that I can do that through the loop. So 
If you have any questions along the way, uh, feel free to reach out to me, to reach out to Mark, uh, to reach out to Jordan or Shane Klein. Um, we're we're the, kind of the primary instructors for this. And so we're, we're learning along the way with you too. So if we don't have an answer, um, we'll tell you we don't know and then try to find uh, an answer for that. So yeah, thank you guys again. Uh, it's 9.05, so hopefully you're not past your bedtime. But we'll see, yeah. All right, we'll see you guys next week.